Coming up on Stew Does America, it's that time of year again where I defend Glenn Beck from a hostile, ill-informed media. But don't worry, it's like a hobby for me. Mike Chase addresses whether a pandemic kills libertarianism before anything else. And Rachel Bovard tells us what wonderful little nuggets the Democrats have slipped into the coronavirus rescue bill. Now that you'll be reaping the rewards of free government money, why not subscribe to Blaze TV? Go to blazetv.com slash stew and make sure to use the code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. If you don't have the cash to subscribe, no worries. Do it for free on podcasts and YouTube. And if you can rate and review, that would be much appreciated. It only takes a couple of seconds to click five stars and type, it's great, whatever. Remember, the magical YouTube bell is there as well. It's like the Liberty Bell. Click it and receive all notifications. It will liberate our content and make sure it actually gets to you, which is not easy in today's age of censorship. And now, let me tell you clearly and for the permanent record, I hate the title of this episode. Stu does America. On yesterday's Glenn Beck radio program, which I happen to be a part of, Glenn said something so controversial that it had him trending nationally on Twitter. Mediaite wrote it up in this way in a tweet. Glenn Beck issues call for older Americans to go back to work. Wow. I mean, that is controversial, or at least it would be if he had actually said it. The Mediaite story went on to say that Glenn urged older listeners to go back to work and that they, uh, Glenn said they should, uh, I believe the quote was, should do it now. They should go back to work. They should. Those bastards. Those are all quotes from the article about Glenn's comments, but they most certainly are not quotes from Glenn himself. That's because mainly Glenn didn't say them. Here's what he actually did say. I want to have a frank conversation with you and and ask you where you stand. I I mean, I'm in the danger zone. Uh, I'm right at the edge. I'm 56. In Italy, they're saying if you're sick and you're 60, don't even come in. So I'm in the danger zone. I would rather have my children stay home and all of us who are over 50 go in and keep this economy going and working even if we all get sick i'd rather die than kill the country because it's not the economy that's dying it's the country wow i would rather have my children stay home and all of us who are over 50 go in and keep this economy going and working even if we all get sick i would rather die than kill the country did you catch where he told anyone to do anything neither did i he said he would rather die than kill the country. Uh, By the way, is that even controversial? I mean, I guess it is to the left. They used to make patriotic songs about that mindset, but now I guess it makes you progressive enemy number one. At no point does Glenn urge anyone to do anything. At no point does Glenn issue a call for anyone to do anything. At no point does Glenn say anyone should go back to work. He simply says, given the hypothetical choice between saving the country and risking his life, he'd risk his life. However, it's pretty damn clear that Glenn doesn't think we're at that hypothetical situation yet, as evidenced by the fact that he's literally doing the show in his house in the clip they posted. Glenn is basically saying, look, the economy is not about us having big screen TVs or some Wall Street tycoon pocketing a few extra bucks. The economy 
is life. The economy is civilization. The economy is every amazing medical development we utilize. The economy is every innovation that makes up modern life. The economy is the American system. And if you destroy it, the entire world and every person in it suffers immeasurably. Is there a midpoint where we can save as many lives as possible from coronavirus and still keep the American way of life going? Well, we're going to find out if we can find the sweet spot, but it's not going to be easy. Every thinking adult on earth understands that our way of life is a series of cost-benefit analysis applied in a way that hopefully maximizes freedom and quality of life while minimizing the harm to individuals. However, that is a trade-off, and we only pretend it isn't a trade-off when we want to vilify the other side for political gain. I could give you a ridiculous list of examples here, but I'm never going to do better than reason. And also, I can't rap. Traffic deaths have many crying with fear. Over 30,000 people are dying each year. This modest change I propose must be applied. Unless, of course, you just want people to die. Alcohol deaths are exceeding comparisons. Black people, white people, Native Americans. We need to ban alcohol. It can't be denied. Unless, of course, you just want people to die. Murders are bad. They have no defenders, yet many are committed by repeat offenders. I say lifetime in prison, whatever the crime. Unless, of course, you just want people to die. I don't have a bill or a groan to detail. I just need a short clip for my donor email. Tim, there's blood on your hands. You want people to die. That good? Cool. Tim, dinner at five? Yeah. The car deaths I mentioned are terrible stuff. Doesn't seem one seatbelt is ever enough. You must vote for my act so that fewer will cry. Unless, of course, you just want people to die. The carbs, the container, we cannot ignore. Whipped cream's killing more people than ever before. This bill would be passed and be ratified if those people there didn't want people to die. Why not weigh all the costs, the effects, the results? Empathize with each other as if we were adults. Use our brains to craft arguments, not vilify. See that freedom's a traitor. You want people to die! I tried. I mean, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine our political system captured more accurately than that. These are tough decisions with death on both sides. But if you stop and consider that, you want people to die. Look, the original anti-Glenn clip and framing comes from an organization called Media Matters. It's hard to go after them. Uh, it's an organization that exists solely to search conservative shows and find lines or phrases they can pull out of context and push to the media so they can hit their hate click quota. It's a thankless existence, and while it's easy to bash them, you have to consider the humanity of the situation. These are people who show up every day and are paid just above minimum wage to listen to shows that they hate. I mean, just that would make you miserable, but then they have to search for exact, exact right edit point to suck a phrase out of context in a desperate hope that it will fool the media into making it go viral. And maybe the worst part is if they succeed, and it going viral? Everyone has forgotten about them and the clip in just a few hours. Can you imagine the sadness that must penetrate that existence? Having grace and understanding is hard sometimes, but it's desperately needed here. Here's a group of people who have dedicated their lives to hosts like Glenn Beck, who they don't even like. They live in a constant state of servitude, hanging on every word he says, like a peasant in a middle-aged kingdom. They toil away in these fields for years and years on end with no measurable result. 
Imagine this life. They're essentially the political version of sex trafficking victims. They're conscripted to a miserable existence where they get out of bed and they're forced to perform disgusting acts day after day in a hope that one day they'll escape to something better. But for so many of them, this is it. No one is coming to the rescue. Think about it. Maybe over the years, they've had a couple of clips that get brought up when a lazy reporter tries to fill out a profile of Glenn. But I mean, they've posted over 5,000 videos of Glenn Beck alone. 5,000. Each one of them represents another day where a poor Media Matters intern has to face themselves in the mirror, knowing that their life can't possibly amount to more than a giant zilch. Imagine having to tell someone you're dating what you do for a living. Do you ever get a message back after that? Or are you in a constant state of being ghosted? No one wants to be the significant other of someone so insignificant. No one would ever want to be friends with someone like that. It's, it's compassion, not criticism, that is demanded by these circumstances. But for the media... How on earth do you keep falling for this crap? I mean, I, you know, the New York Times posts a video and you only need the headline and, you, and that's all you wind up taking in before writing a story. I mean, it's lazy, it's pathetic, but maybe it's a little understandable. This is media matters. All they do is lie every single day. Is it really too much for a media source to actually listen to the edited clip they're posting? I mean, I get that you're not going to go back to the show and find the context. I got it. I understand you're not going to take a few minutes necessary to understand where Glenn has been standing on this particular issue all along. But can you just listen to the full 30 second video? At the end of the day, Mediaite was forced to delete their tweet and change their story because it was so misleading. But by then, hundreds of others had taken their lead. New York Magazine referenced Beck's call for older Americans to boldly go back to the workplace, which, as you heard, he didn't make and summarized Glenn's viewpoint on the issue as to hell with the coronavirus. Here's a guy who's dedicated endless hours to the dangers of the coronavirus, most of which were happening when the mainstream media was tweeting stuff like this. Is this going to be a a deadly pandemic? No. Unfortunately for them, they had to delete their tweet, too. Remember, your old critique of Glenn is that he was in the doom room and he was terrifying everyone with his crazy threats like economic collapse and caliphates. Well, he took this one seriously, too. He covered it endlessly. And for a long time, everyone was saying he was too alarmist about it. But here we are. Look, if you're some mainstream outlet toiling away to hit your story quota, you might not know that Glenn was doing daily coronavirus updates weeks and weeks before the media was taking it seriously. But I knew one reason I knew is because I get paid to listen to him every day. Well, the guy who made you look like a fool by misleading you into thinking that Glenn was just another example of some flippant conservative that doesn't care about this serious pandemic. Well, he knew the truth as well. Because he gets paid to listen to the show every day, too. And yet he hung you out to dry anyway. He made you look like an ass in front of the entire country. He had you think about this. You had a nationally trending tweet that you had to delete. You were lured into a trap and you fell for it. And tomorrow it'll be someone else 
Tomorrow it'll be somebody else who has a boss that no longer trusts their judgment. Tomorrow it'll be somebody else's mom who's disappointed in them. Tomorrow it'll be somebody else's girlfriend who stops respecting them and eventually dumps them out of sheer embarrassment. But today, my friend, it's you. Today is your day. Remember who is responsible for it. Mike Chase is joining us. He's a criminal defense attorney and also the man behind at a crime a day. Just a fantastic Twitter follow. Uh, It's a Twitter feed that explores the more ridiculous and unconventional aspects of our legal system. His latest book is How to Become a Federal Criminal, an illustrated handbook for the aspiring offender. Mike, uh, thanks for coming on the program. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I've heard this a million times on Twitter. Uh, there are no libertarians in a pandemic. It's the big catchphrase of the day. And I don't know, it doesn't strike me as proving true so far. Uh, well, it's a great headline because I'm seeing it all over the place and everybody's announcing the end of libertarianism, which is just a wonderful turn of events. But I actually think that it's proving us right in a lot of ways. Look, we've always dreamed of the world looking like Mad Max, Thunderdome, <laughs> and we're like we're like right there. We're like inches <laughs> away from it looking that way. So I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, I mean, it's funny because you know this idea that the the issue with this has been not enough government is a fascinating thought to me. I, you know, here we have this massive um, government. We have we spend trillions and trillions of dollars a year. If we spent like libertarians wanted us to spend, we wouldn't be $22 trillion in debt and we'd be able to do whatever we really needed to do here. Uh, And not to mention all the testing requirements and all the the red tape that's been cleared out to make whatever advances we've had possible. This is not a good case for them, is it? Uh, No. And in fact, when the first order of business, I mean, we've all heard the phrase, the battle plan doesn't last beyond the first shot. The first order of business here was, oh, my gosh, we've got a crisis. We need to get the government agencies out of the way. So we need the CDC to loosen regulations. We need the FDA to scuttle its regulations. TSA says, hey, look, you know, liquids uh, bring however much hand sanitizer you want. Is it flammable? Sure. But look, we're just going to scuttle all these regulations because we've got a crisis on our hands. I would say if if regulations start getting abandoned in a time of crisis, it's time to take a hard look at how much government is actually necessary. So uh, when you when you look at this and you say kind of government does tend in these situations to have a, a, an amazing uh, ability to grab additional power, to take power away from the citizens because they're freaked out. This is a legitimate mm-hmm. threat. We're all kind of freaked out about it at some level. And I feel like when this is over, if and when it's ever over, We are going to have a hell of a fight on our hands to make sure that they are not trying to grab tons of power. That's the deadly serious part about this whole thing, I think, is that this is a crisis of such a scale. I mean, 9-11 was a huge crisis. And the amount of liberty that we gave away in that time of crisis and how willing the population was to allow that to happen was scary. I think that we're going to see an order of magnitude greater with this crisis because it didn't take long. The government said, everybody stay home, uh, stop working, shut down the economy, and just a ridiculously huge percentage of the population said, yes, yes, father, tell me what to do next. <laughs> That's a little bit scary. That's a little bit scary. It is. And it's in, in really like, you know, constitutionally protected things like church. 
I mean, can the government in this country, no matter what the situation is, come to you and say, no, you can't go to church? I mean, that is where we are right now. Well, there's there's a lot of tensions in the Constitution that we are exploring largely for the first time right now. The government has, you know, pretty broad police powers. They have a lot of powers to ensure public health and safety. But we also, you're right, have these robust constitutional protections. Look, you have governors saying that gun shops are not essential services Mm. when they are the only avenue for people to actually exercise their Second Amendment right. Now, there are other stores that are staying open. Head shops can stay open. Best Buy can stay open in a lot of places. But what you end up having is you have governors saying, I'm actually just going to cut off your ability to bear arms. That means that there's essentially no limits on what constitutional uh, protections they can cut off. And, and, and so far, there will be challenges in the courts. But right now, everybody's been pretty happy to stay at home, which is which is frightening. Yeah. One of, the, one of these states is definitely going to just say, you know what? It's still the emergency still going on and you still can't get, get, go get your guns. Sorry. They're going to try it, aren't they? Well, I mean, look, you had at least one gun shop. I think it was in New Jersey where there's a bunch of people that had placed orders for guns. They were just available for pickup. They could have easily been picked up curbside, just like your takeout food could have been. Mm-hmm. And the governor said, look, I'm comfortable with my decision. So I think you're exactly right. I think I think at least with the with the Second Amendment, there's a big threat. But look, the right to assemble peacefully. That's a problem <laughs> uh, for the government to swoop in and say, stay six feet apart. And I don't care if it's your mom. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, I was because they keep saying like these these large families uh, basically can't meet together, uh, which is a problem. When you if you have a bunch yeah. of kids, uh, it could be a problem. Um, you have a, yeah. No, the Duggar the Duggars are canceled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. You have a great uh, great knowledge looking back at all the crazy laws that your books about and your, and your Twitter feed as well. All the crazy laws that are out there and, and bizarre things um, that have kind of uh, been around for a lot of them a long time. Uh, is there any here that you see that could pop up into our, our purview? Because a lot of times they'll sit around unused for a long time until the right moment is there to exploit them. Well, look, I mean, the the Title VII of the U.S. Code provides for all the sort of United States Department of Agriculture uh, power. And for a long time, I mean, a very long time, we've had quarantine rules that are designed to prevent, you know, pests, plant pests from moving across state lines. I mean, anybody who's ever been up in the Northeast knows and, and across the country, you want to bring firewood across state lines, you can't do it. But the federal government regulates the movement of things from state to state out of a concern that you might spread a pest or you might spread some sort of disease. I think we're looking at a a time where that power is very ripe. You can't bring an unshucked ear of corn out of New York. Okay, (laughs) you can shuck a corn ear of corn and bring it out of New York, but you can't bring an unshucked ear of corn. Uh, Pickling, pickling cucumbers. They can't leave South Carolina and North Carolina. You can't bring muck, shovels, garden tools, stumps across most state lines because of that power. And what it does is it gives the government this power to sort of peer into your vehicle. Look, what's probable cause? Maybe you're moving an unchecked ear of corn. Well, now you've committed a federal crime. And so it's it's true with that. It's also true with respect to money. I saw a very disturbing report today that there are cell phone data that is surreptitiously being used in order to track what states are most compliant with these quarantine orders. Mm. In other words, they can say, look, uh, Connecticut's doing good, but Wyoming's doing really badly. And if they get more granular with it, uh, we have a threat to liberty there. Yeah, I mean, like the New York Times is running stories where they they seemingly have access to everyone's cell phones or somehow been able to aggregate I, the data and show where everyone's moving. 
Uh, that didn't, I don't remember approving that, but it seems to be our, <laughs> our reality right now. Yeah, no, it, it, it is the reality. So, so data tracking is, is frightening. Uh, look, you also have the ability to look at money. I've always laughed at the idea that you can't leave the country with more than $25 worth of nickels. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a, a problem. But, you know, look, nickels are a terrible coin, so we've been able to get by with it. But it, it's also a similar power that the government has to say that you can't deposit money in increments less than $10,000 to avoid a reporting requirement. It's called structuring. Well, there's no requirement that those transactions be like terroristic or drug transactions, mm. none of that. The government basically just says, we're going to pass a law if you circumvent our ability to get information about you. I think a crisis like this right now creates lots of opportunities for regulators to say, boy, we need much more data collection to make sure that we can uh, prevent uh, the spread of viruses like this in the future. Yeah, it's an, it, there's a lot of interesting things with the banks going on right now. Obviously, they, they just put out a video last night, which was like, please don't take money out of the bank. Everything's fine here. Don't worry about it, <laughs> which was a very creepy thing. Like, you don't tell us. It's like if your wife comes home, is like, I'm not cheating on you. Why do you think I'm cheating on you? I want you to know that we have a great relationship. It was a very weird statement to come out. But there are people who are looking at this and saying, look, we're at, we're at a time of crisis. We don't know how this turns out. I don't know what's going to go on the banks. I'm going to go out and take out, you know, half of my money. And it might be a, a large amount. And banks are telling them, no, the government has to approve you taking out your own money. Again, this does not seem at all constitutional, but it seems common. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the perils with any of these financial institutions, right? It's, you know, FDIC insurance is cold comfort in times of panic. Um, but but you're right. I mean, it, actually, to your point, if your wife came home and said, hey, look, I'm not cheating on you. Don't worry. I just my son just came into the room the other day and said, Daddy, I don't have any Play-Doh in my pockets. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, OK, let's uh, check those pockets. Sure enough. But but I, I think you're right. When the banks are saying, look, everybody be calm. There's no crisis here. Don't make a run on the banks. That only feeds into anxiety. And, and you're right, the restrictions on ability to access your own property are scary. I also find it scary how many times federal government officials have had to come out, state government officials have had to come out and say, hey, hey, we just want to be really clear. This is not martial law, okay? Just does everybody understand that we're not imposing martial law? And we'll, oh, okay, thank you. Because it really sure looked a lot like martial law for a little while there. So I, I agree. I mean, I think that there's a lot of signals coming from government, financial institutions that are disconcerting. And and uh, and, and it's going to take somebody to stand up and make a challenge in court that they're being deprived of property and they're being deprived of due process just in the name of an emergency. Uh, one last one here for you, Mike. I, I've been going into this whole crisis with the thought in the back of my head that there's a certain limit where the American people just aren't going to take this anymore. I mean, we're, we're not China, right? Mm -hmm. We have a different culture. This country was created in totally different circumstances. And at some point, we were going to hit that level where these asks are too big. Am I even right on that? I'm not even sure anymore. Am I right? I think you're absolutely right. But I'm also sharing your anxiety about how large of a percentage it is that seem to be unbothered by this, that seem to be perfectly happy to shame others for their even desire to go out and resume a normal life. Mm. I think it's perfectly natural for a liberty-minded person to say, I want my life to be back to normal. I want to continue to engage in my freedoms. But I'm, I'm concerned mostly about the people that are willing to vigorously shame and even call government officials to rat out people that they think are um, 
exercising their liberty. So I, I, I share the same fear as you, but I, I do have a lot of hope that that core of liberty mindedness still remains in the country. Yeah, I mean, I think people are good people. They want to do what they can to make sure this goes away. But there does come a time where we're going to have to be able to have our freedom back. Hopefully that comes sooner rather than later. Uh, Mike Chase, we're going to have to look in the book to see if kids are able to move Plato in their pockets across state lines. We don't have time to get into that particular topic today, but it's a great one. And you should definitely check yeah. it out. Mike, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming <laughs> Thanks. on the program. Uh, Mike you. Chase, it's um, a crime a day uh, on Twitter. Uh, you got to make, make sure you check that out. And the book is How to Become a Federal Criminal, an illustrated handbook for the aspiring offender. Back in a second. A lot of bizarre stories in the media today. Uh, this one I have to be I'm skeptical on. Occasionally you may note me as a skeptic on certain issues. This one is one of them. Have you seen this coronavirus challenge yet where people on like YouTube and, and TikTok go up and lick toilet bowls? I, the first time I saw it was was with uh, some woman in a uh, airplane. It looked like here's another one. This one just uh, kind of came out a couple days ago. And there's a new development in this story. Watch the horrible video here if you would like uh, and you happen to be watching. By the way, you can watch the show. Uh, you can air it whenever you go ahead. You can roll it. But uh, we can watch the show on Blaze TV whenever you'd like or YouTube. Um, here we go. He's walking into the thing. He goes, oh, I'm, I'm really funny. And, and he goes down and he licks the, the toilet, uh, the outside of the toilet. And it's the coronavirus uh, challenge. Now, the first time I saw this, and I keep coming back to this, that's not really how you get coronavirus, I don't think. I guess potentially you could get it through, through urine or something. I, I, I mean, it's gross to even think about. However, this person is now claiming to have coronavirus. So they did the coronavirus challenge. They get all the publicity and then they post a video later on saying I'm in the hospital. I have coronavirus. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't believe it. I got to be frank about it. I just don't believe it. This guy's pulled other stunts apparently on social media before. He did the ice cream thing where you lick the ice cream and put it back in the, uh, in the, in the freezer. I just don't believe it. People want attention. Even in a, in a situation like this, I don't if it if it happens, we'll update you. I know it's very important and vital to your uh, your uh, your well-being. Um, here's another one that had an update. And I want to make sure that we get to these because this one's fascinating. Do you remember this video? This is a big video. And and I am I, this is going to be a monologue soon. I'm calling it out right now. We need a Andrew Cuomo monologue. Can we write that down? Because. People are trying to talk about now, oh, you know, Andrew Cuomo's done such a good job here. He's done such a good job with this, with this scare. He looks so in control. And what a wonderful job he's done in New York. Have you seen New York? You ever look at the maps where they put the red circles around the problem areas? The whole state's covered. It's a giant circle. Uh, this, he's, he's overseeing the biggest catastrophe in the world when it comes to coronavirus outside of Italy right now. And everyone's giving him credit because he, I guess he's confident in his briefings. I don't even understand this. I swear it's a combination where he just looks so much better than Bill de Blasio that people assume he's good. But I really don't understand it. Um, do you remember this part, though? This is how he led his big coronavirus response with his important message about prisons. We are introducing New York State clean hand sanitizer mm. made conveniently by the state of New York. Oh. This is a superior product to products now on the market. Is it? Uh, the uh, World Health Organization, CDC, all those people suggest 
60% alcohol content. Purell, competitor to New York State Clean, 70% alcohol. This is 75% alcohol. Oh, wow. It also has a, comes in a variety of sizes. It has a very nice floral bouquet. <laughs> How is this possible? Little I detect the lilac, hydrangea, tulips. What does it smell like to you? Hydrangea and lilac, really? This is the guy you want leading your country? Um, but So he made this big presentation. I'm just fascinated by this, that people think this guy is good. Made this presentation uh, about how they were going to make this really cheap hand sanitizer for everybody because it was in such need. Uh, Vice decided to check in on that, and I give them a lot of credit for doing so. Um, they found out that the hand sanitizer itself is being produced by an outside vendor uh, that they would not name. They talked to a prisoner who talked to Vice under condition of anonymity, said um, people are bottling the sanitizer 24 hours a day. Um, however, they're making it somewhere else. There's one guy who worked 116 hours in a week. He just stays there bottling all the time. However, like, why would it be any cheaper if someone else is producing it off-site and then you're bottling it? Like, you're not saving the taxpayers any money, and you completely lied to them. That, with the whole thing with the shutdown, this guy's been a disaster. I, I, this is the answer when Joe Biden decides he's going to drop out because he's, he falls asleep too often in the middle of press conferences. I'm not going to be impressed by it. Um, however, maybe he should just start talking about the real issue with COVID-19. A lot of people are talking about illness. A lot of people are talking about sickness. A lot of people are talking about loss of freedom. A lot of people are talking about the economy crashing, spending trillions of dollars. That's not the issue with COVID-19. You want to know the real issue with COVID-19? Watch. Let us not forget that COVID-19 is a gendered crisis. Oh, nurses, nurse aides, teachers, child carers, mm. and early childhood educators, aged care workers, and cleaners are mostly women. They are shirt. on the front line of this public health crisis mm. and carry a disproportionate risk of being exposed to the virus. <laughs> Let's also not forget that not all homes are safe places. Mm. Quarantine or self-isolation at home will put women and children at risk. Women's That's, advocates yeah. and domestic violence experts are warning us that domestic abuse increases during times of crisis. Okay. And I'm terribly worried that these warnings have not been heeded by this government. I will say this, that, that what she's saying at the, end, at the end is actually a legitimate problem uh, that uh, it's not just women. It's, it's boys and girls, uh, kids who are abused or are now at home all the time with bad mommy and bad daddy. And if you happen to be a spouse of a bad husband, uh, that can be really ugly. But calling COVID-19 is it's a it's an issue we all are all facing. It's not a gendered issue. It's an issue we're all facing. And why we always try to separate ourselves on these nonsensical lines, I just don't understand it. But it is very typical of the left right now, who just finds social justice warrior nonsense in every single thing uh, that they can. You, you never be woke enough. You never are woke enough. I want to give you one little bit of a scattered shower of journalism, as we've uh, called it before. Uh, I don't think journalists realize how far something like this can go to make you actually listen to their criticisms. This is uh, from The Daily today. I just want to give you real quick. The Daily, this is a, um, a podcast done by The New York Times. It's a half an hour of just Trump bashing in this episode even. Um, but there's this one clip in here, and I want to play this for you. It's about 30 seconds. Maggie Haberman, who has gone back and forth from Trump's favorite reporter to his least favorite reporter. Uh, here's what she talks about when she's going through the COVID-19 saga. As there were more cases, and it was clear that it was spreading out of China where it originated, 
the president took this move that he was widely criticized for by Democrats and even some Republicans at the time, which was he halted a number of flights from China into the U.S. Mm -hmm. The idea was to halt the spread of the disease, keep transmissions to a minimum. He was accused of xenophobia. He was accused of making a racist move. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it was probably effective Mm -hmm. because it did actually take a pretty aggressive measure against the spread of the virus. The problem is it was one of the last things that he did for several weeks. Again, there's a lot of criticism in here. Uh, Some of it kind of legitimate, some of it not. But just taking that one moment to acknowledge something that's blatantly obvious, instead of trying to continue to hold on to this view that it was racist or whatever else, goes a long way, I think, to get people in the middle of the country, conservatives, to listen to criticism, to at least consider it, to at least take you seriously. Uh, So credit to Maggie Haberman on that one. We're back here in just a second. Rachel Bovard is the senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute and co-author of Conservative Knowing What to Keep. And I have to tell you, uh, we plan on having uh, Rachel on uh, via Skype, our um, quarantine interview tool of choice. However, all you people are at home watching Netflix in 4K and it's screwing up my interviews. Get off the Internet for a second. Go talk to your kids or something. Okay. Thank you. Instead, um, we have this old-timey technology called a telephone that we have Rachel on with us. Uh, Rachel, thanks for coming on the program. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. So uh, let's look at this bill because you've, you know, you've worked with, you know, I mean, you, your list of uh, senators and congressmen that you've worked with is, is basically an all-star team to me, including Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Pat Toomey, uh, Ted Poe, and more. Um, so you know how these bills come down. You know the process. You've, you've been in the middle of all of this. Uh, when when we have an actual crisis and a lot of people would agree that we need to do something, how does this even happen where, for in this example, the Democrats are just trying to slide in about a thousand things that uh, have nothing to do with, with the crisis at all? Well, the old adage, never let a crisis go to waste, is not lost on the Democrats. Uh, they come to play. And it's really stunning because, again, this is a bill to address the suffering of working families and small businesses who, through no fault of their own, are you know, being forced to close or stay at home, cannot work. Yet Democrats see this as an opportunity to gain power. And that is what they're trying to do. You saw a draft from Speaker Pelosi um, a couple of days ago that had everything from election security to the Green New Deal uh, to all kinds of different uh, pet projects. And and even if her bill doesn't pass, you're still seeing provisions in the Senate bill that fund the bureaucracy. Twenty five million dollars for the Kennedy Center, 50 million dollars for National Endowment for the Arts. None of this has anything to do with helping working families and small businesses. But yet here we are on the edge of passing uh, a bill with all that in it. It really is fascinating. Um, we were looking at the uh, the draft that came out this morning. So there's the Pelosi draft because it seemed like this was already done. And I guess this ramping up pro- uh, process is, is one of the things that's really bothering me about this whole thing, because I think initially uh, Chuck Schumer wanted seven hundred and fifty billion dollars. And then the administration was like, no, eight fifty. And then they're like, no, what about a trillion, then one point two trillion. Now we're up to like two trillion dollars. People just keep adding on and adding on and adding on. Um, one of the drafts that I saw today had uh, a, a piece of it that said, if you take money from this uh, particular program and you're a midsize business, 
you can no longer oppose unions uh, within your company. Is that accurate or does that how, how many companies does this apply to? Well, it's pretty strictly limited to the airlines, uh, but that provision is in there. Um, basically, if the airlines take money uh, from the government, and these, these are loans, they would have to be paid back, but they are still not allowed to oppose any union organizing. So, again, this is just one of those little nuggets that was slipped in uh, that pushes progressive priorities. Um, this is a Schumer priority. Um, and so this is something the Senate's going to have to decide if they want to pass or not. And they're probably going to have to just take it in some because there's going to be no amendments to this bill. Um, it is being frantically negotiated and it will be passed um, without any amendments. So I mean, hopefully th- they all read it in advance. This is, yeah, you know, good luck with that. Um, you know, it's funny because, I mean, we're talking about maybe the biggest bill that's ever passed through Congress and multiple trillions of dollars we're talking about. And they want to do it through unanimous consent. They don't even want votes on the record. I understand the rush. I understand there's a real reason for some of this. Uh, but it, it does seem like this is a jam through that when this is all over, we're going to look back and regret big portions of. I think that's right. You know, there's been an urge by some senators to say, you know, take out the small business relief and the direct payments to families, make it its own bill and pass that by itself. And then you can have a separate vote on all this, you know, corporate giveaways on, you know, expanding the bureaucratic state, make that a separate issue. Uh, But you have enough people in Washington who say, this is how we do business. This is how the swamp perpetuates itself. And so all of it has to be in one bill. And it's really disappointing because, again, the goal of this bill is a justifiable one, and that is to help the working families and businesses who are suffering because of the government actions, because of something they can't control. And it's really unfortunate that, you know, there are people in Washington that would use that as an excuse to fund to fund their own priorities. And that's and that's what you're seeing here. You put that in a way that 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 connects with me, because I've had this situation here where I'm pretty much anti bailout in every circumstance. But this is different than 2008 um, in a way that it's not it's it's, as you pointed out, no fault of their own. Um, Am I just justifying this here because I'm terrified of an evil virus that's coming to kill me? Or is this I mean, this is government basically telling these companies no, sorry, you can't go open your business today. Yeah, in many cases, it's the latter. It's the government saying, you know, you cannot go to work, you cannot go to school, your restaurants must be closed. Now, this isn't the federal government, right? The federal government's issued guidelines that are pretty reasonable, uh, which is to say, you know, keep social distance and wash your hands. But it's these state governments who are responding to, you know, a potential infectious disease crisis who are shutting down these businesses. And so this is an attempt by the government to say, look, we're, we've taken actions that don't allow you to run your business, and so we're going to try to help make you whole uh, due to actions of our own making. Now, hopefully, right in the next couple of days, once we have good data on how this virus is spreading, some parts of the economy can start opening back up where they're not you know, suffering like New York is or California is. But we don't have that data yet. So we're in the situation where states are acting with the utmost caution. And I think you'd see a lot of libertarians and conservatives say when the state is forcing businesses to close, it's okay for the state to help out those business owners who, again, are suffering through no fault of their own. This is this is like the perfect storm of uh, of making every like this is just a difficult situation because we really don't we uh, honestly do not have enough data to really know what to do against this thing. We're trying to do the best that we can, I think, and people are just participating out of their good hearts and because they want to do the the right thing. But, uh, you know, when these things happen, what we usually find is a grab for power from a centralized government that realizes we kind of can't say no right now. 
Um, you know, is this something that we're going to be fighting, you know, to push back against for the next decade? Or do you think that there's at least enough good actors uh, in Washington that we're not going to cross too many lines? Well, I think right now the Senate bill, as it's drafted, walks a pretty fine line. There's a lot to hate in it, right? It gives a ton of money to these bureaucracies that don't need it, to be quite honest. But the assistance that is in the bill is targeted and temporary. Um, The paid family leave restrictions or the paid family leave mandates expire. The unemployment insurance comes to an end. So there aren't these permanent restrictions or permanent mandates. However, I do think that this impetus to legislate is not going to stop. And that's where I think the real danger is going to be, because this is a two trillion dollar phase three uh, package. They're already talking about phase four. They're already talking about bailing out the post office. They're already talking about, you know, you saw Joe Biden in his press conference today say we're going to get the Green New Deal on the next package. So I think that's really what conservatives need to be worried about is what's coming down the pike. Um, That's going to be a wild grab for power, a wild grab for permanent changes that have nothing to do with the coronavirus. That's what we need to be worried about. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's so true. Uh, Taking a step back from the legislation itself. Does it strike you as just freaking crazy that three weeks ago, you know, we're all talking about how good the economy is and how wonderful everything is. Uh, Things are going pretty well, it seems. And then here we are a few weeks later. No one can go outside their house. It just strikes me as really shocking how close to the edge we are as a society at any given moment. I mean, it didn't feel that way three weeks ago, a month ago, but here we are. It is wild how fragile I think it makes everybody feel. Um, And I hope it's not going to last that much longer. I think we can start to hopefully open up the economy once we have the data to know how the virus is spreading. Um, But I will say, I think it's been amazing how quickly Americans have mobilized. You know, we could have been Italy. We could have had this disease ravaging, you know, our our communities um, and our cities. And to some extent, we have that, but it's been very limited. And I think that speaks very well to sort of how the American people have responded, but also how the government has responded. You know, we don't have socialized medicine. We were able to be pretty nimble about lifting regulations, getting government out of the way to incentivize, uh, you know, a virus response and a vaccine development. And that, I think, has all been good. I hope some of that stays permanent, right? I hope some of those regulations stay lifted because I don't know why they were there in the first place if they were inhibiting our response. Um, But I do think Americans will come through this. Um, Hopefully we can start going back to school and to work. But I think it's a credit to everyone that we mobilized as fast as we did. Rachel Bovard is a senior director of policy at the Conservative Policy Institute. The book is Conservative, Knowing What to Keep on the Magical Technology Called a Telephone. Rachel, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Before we leave, can we go back to COVID-19 as a gendered crisis lady for a second? What's going on with this shirt? (laughs) If you're an audio listener, it's basically a mesh and it's got like fabric across the chest. It's just not... I don't understand the shirt. Shirts you understand at stewdoesmerch.com. Get one there.